Jen here with a quick update for new listeners. Watch with Jen began its life solely on Patreon, and while that's still the first place I publish new episodes, all of which you can listen to as soon as they drop for as little as a dollar a month, once they're unlocked to everyone, you will find them available to listen to here as well. Just a heads up if you wonder why I talk about Patreon so much for the first few shows. Thanks for listening and happy movie watching. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com or at filmintuition on social media and letterboxed. And this is Watch with Jen. It's been a crazy couple of weeks and bound to get even stranger. So I want to send my very best to you and the ones you love. And I'm hoping everyone is doing well. As for me, I'm just going to keep on recommending movies and hoping that I can give you some cool distractions during this chaotic time. To that end, last week I put together a list of all of the films that I showed in my screening series over at Scottsdale Public Library. Talking about the station agent kind of put that back in my head. And so I hit my archives and made a list on Letterboxd, complete with notes, including some of the more amusing reactions from patrons, a guy doubting Steve Carell's sex appeal, and a woman forgetting to breathe when she saw Russell Crowe. So it's all over there, and I hope that you can check it out. There's a post on Patreon that links right to it. I also posted a streaming channel survey to make sure that I'm recommending movies that you guys can actually watch. There's been a lot of good feedback. Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, Criterion seem to be the most popular ones. Of course, after I posted it, I realized I forgot Shudder. So if you want to go ahead and add any on or take that poll, it's going through, I believe, sometime on Thursday is when it ends. So feel free to do that. I also took your advice and edited the tiers I'm pretty new at Patreon. This is all completely foreign to me, so I'm learning as I go. So I apologize if you received like 800 notifications telling you that I edited something or whatever. I'm trying to make sure I click and turn them all off, but I know I've missed a few. I started with a $1 tier, and that's really where I want to leave it. I'm happy for a dollar. I'm just happy to have you all listen, honestly. But I did have some people who, out of the goodness of their heart, they wanted to give a little bit more, which, you again, you so don't need to do or feel pressured to do. So I added two more tiers, a $2 and a $3. Again, I just kind of want to keep it low. Obviously, some people have gone beyond, but again, not expected at all. So... There's a post introducing that. I tried to get creative, take a cue from other Patreon pages. So for a dollar, I'm calling you guys Goodfellas. Number two is Moonstruck at $2. And then the third, I went with Across the Universe. I was trying to think of titles that sort of reflected not only my taste in film, but my connection to all of you and what I'm hoping to get across. And a special thanks again to everyone on Twitter who gave me really good advice last week on how to record Skype calls. Unfortunately, I discovered that some of the software and add-ons they mentioned are for Mac only, and I'm a PC girl, 
So I'm still looking into it. It looks like Skype has a pretty easy to use call recorder there. I also ordered a microphone. I didn't go with the Cadillac of microphones, the Blue Yeti, which is well over 100. So I kind of went with the Toyota. So we'll see what happens with this microphone when it comes later this week. So hopefully I'll be able to set it up. And of course, once I get it all set up and tested out, I'm really looking forward to inviting some friends on. I know some people with extraordinary taste, and I'm really looking forward to chatting with them in a different format than just Twitter or text or email. So I think that'll be a lot of fun, and I can't wait to share and introduce you to all of them. Kicking off our first movie of the week, we have What Lies Beneath, which was made in 2000 from director Robert Zemeckis. You can find the film a myriad of places, including Netflix and Hoopla, which would be ad-free. Hoopla is a library app, kind of like Canopy. It's also available on Tubi and Crackle as well. If you don't have access to Netflix and Hoopla, there you go. Unfortunately, it will have ads, but the film is uncut still and very much worth it. It's Robert Zemeckis in supernatural thriller mode, which he does very well. Obviously, everyone knows he has a way with science fiction because of Back to the Future, but this has him combining science fiction with a more Hitchcockian style. The film, at many moments, does have nods to Rear Window, a little bit of Vertigo. It's based on a script by none other than Marvel's Agent Coulson, Clark Gregg, and based on a story by him and Sarah Kernichen, I want to say. It's his first film script. He later wrote and directed Choke and Trust Me. And I think he would have a really good career as a writer if he wasn't in such demand as a terrific actor as well. The film stars Harrison Ford and Michelle Pfeiffer. Harrison Ford plays a professor and scientist, a highly regarded one. Michelle Pfeiffer is a former orchestral musician who now is a homemaker. She takes care of her daughter who just leaves for college at the beginning of the film and she's very close with her and that's of course emotionally trying. But once she leaves, Pfeiffer starts noticing the tempestuous relationship between her two new neighbors. And after one alarming incident where it looked like the wife next door needed help, she suddenly doesn't see that wife for days on end and worries that something nefarious has happened, starts worrying that she's been killed. So she and her friend, there's always a wacky friend as the comedic relief, stage a seance and she starts to see things, an image of a woman in a lake, and later finds not a vision, but an actual photo in a newspaper of a woman who's missing who looks just like her. So Pfeiffer starts playing amateur detective to try to figure out what happened, if it ties in with the neighbor, and what exactly is going on. It's a slow burn thriller, but Zemeckis makes sure to fill it with a bunch of jump scares, so it's a fun one to watch with others, so you can get collectively freaked out. 
it culminates in one of the scariest last acts that I've seen in recent memory. It has a Hitchcockian twist involving danger in the bathroom. In this case, not a shower, but a tub. And it will definitely unnerve you, let's just say. Pfeiffer and Ford are really good in the film. It gives them the chance to show sides of themselves they're not really called upon to use much. And that is always a good thing. I personally prefer Harrison Ford in these types of roles. My favorite Ford role is probably Witness, of course, but I also dig him in Working Girl and Frantic and The Fugitive, but it's also kind of cool to see him play this this role without giving anything away. There's many facets to his character, just like there's many facets to Pfeiffer's, and it's always good to see Michelle Pfeiffer in something that really knows how to use her well. She's one of those actresses who I think because of her beauty gets overlooked a lot and she always plays against it. And in What Lies Beneath, Pfeiffer both uses her beauty and plays against it, which is a surprisingly effective combination and makes What Lies Beneath a must watch. I've always felt like I graduated along with all of my friends in the class of 96 because I spent the last two years of high school going to college instead. Highly recommend it, by the way. It's always good to get out of there. But I graduated in 99, technically, and at the time... I just had my third spine surgery and was in need of a laugh. So I remember that for one of my graduation gifts, I decided to buy volumes one and two of the collected plays of Neil Simon. And needless to say, I loved reading Neil Simon's work. He's one of those amazing once-in-a-lifetime people who can just sit in a room and know what's funny He doesn't have to bounce it off of anyone. He knows tempo. He knows rhythm, how to make supporting characters both memorable and help serve the plot and move it along. And I think he's one of our best playwrights. Lost in Yonkers in particular, I've always thought was a masterpiece. And around the same time I was reading a lot of Neil Simon's work, the American Film Institute put on one of their 100 years lists back when they used to do that. I miss those. And in 1999, it was 100 years, 100 laughs. And I remember printing off the list from the website. It was like mile long because I actually printed off the list of the films nominated. So it was hundreds of movies. And one of the ones on there was Seems Like Old Times which is our second recommendation of the week. I spent that summer playing video store sleuth and trying to track down as many of the films as possible that I could find. And seems like old times, especially after I found it was written by Neil Simon, kind of jumped to the top of my list. It is the first and only film directed by legendary TV director Jay Sandrich, who helmed a lot of our great classic sitcoms. The 1980 film was also the second pairing of Goldie Hawn and Chevy Chase, who starred in Foul Play a few years earlier, which is also very funny. 
Neil Simon in Seems Like Old Times was inspired by 1940s movies, especially the love triangle comedy The Talk of the Town, which came out in 1942. The Talk of the Town stars Cary Grant and Gene Arthur, who, interestingly enough, star in a movie I'm going to talk about later in this podcast. But in The Talk of the Town, they play two members of a love triangle. The third is Ronald Coleman. And the film finds a wrongfully accused Cary Grant hiding out at Gene Arthur's house while he's trying to clear his name. The same setup happens in Seems Like Old Times. In the film, Chevy Chase plays a struggling writer who is held up at gunpoint by a group of robbers who force him to go along with them as they rob a bank in Carmel. His image is the only one recorded crystal clear on the video camera and it catches the attention of Los Angeles District Attorney Charles Grodin because Chevy Chase is none other than his wife, Goldie Hawn's ex-husband. Later in the film, Chevy Chase winds up at Grodin's house unbeknownst to Grodin and his very kind, caring wife, Goldie Hawn, knows her ex-husband and knows he wouldn't just go off and commit robbery for no reason. And as a public defender herself with huge heart, she decides to help him. Of course, there's a little bit of a push and pull of the heart because it brings up past feelings between the couple. And also Grodin is threatened by it when he finally figures out what's going on. It is a throwback to 1940s comedies. So there's a lot of wacky supporting characters. Public defender Goldie Hawn has a habit of giving her clients jobs at her house in order to make sure that they don't have to go to prison. So she's got this cast of zany characters around her at all times, and it makes it very, very funny. The film culminates in a courtroom scene, actually, that reminds me a lot of the classic Robert Mitchum, Janet Lee movie, Holiday Affair. Seems like old times didn't really do as well as it should have in 1980 because critics thought it was too cute or gimmicky or didn't really dig the 1940s throwback style. When I saw it, I thought it was adorable. I've since found other people on Twitter who also get a kick out of it and toss around some of the lines from the movie, which will make you crave a recipe called chicken pepperoni, which is mentioned like a dozen times. If you like Simon's work, I think you'll get a kick out of it. Also, if you're a fan of the stars, you definitely want to check it out. It's a feel-good movie and one that I discovered at a time when I really needed a laugh, so I wanted to be sure to pass it along to you. You can find Seems Like Old Times on Sony's streaming service, Crackle. Our third film, Loose, is available on Hulu. It is spelled L-U-C-E and was released in 2019. It was one of my favorite films of the year. Incidentally, you can find my entire best of 2019 list, which is still in progress, of course, available on Letterboxd. Luce is the third film from Julius Ona. He also directed 
The Cloverfield Paradox for Netflix, which was the third film in the Cloverfield series that was started by Matt Reeves. Loose stars Naomi Watts, Tim Roth, Octavia Spencer, and a brilliant Kelvin Harrison Jr., who was also in Waves, which is another one of my favorite films from last year, although some people are calling it a 2020 movie because it was one of those that kind of hovered on the edge of one year to the next, so I'm not sure if I'm supposed to count it this year. I think he's going to be one of our greatest actors. The movie was adapted by Ona from J.C. Lee's play. It was written alongside J.C. Lee. In the movie, Calvin Harrison plays a high school senior who was adopted from the war-torn Eritrea, an East African country, by Watts and Roth when he was much younger. He's an all-star athlete, champion debater, charismatic handsome, very popular, all the teachers love him. I should say all the teachers love him, with the exception of a suspicious Octavia Spencer. Having challenged her students to write a paper from the point of view of a historical figure, Octavia Spencer is horrified when she receives Luce's assignment and finds him arguing on behalf of violence and identifying a little bit too much with a controversial figure. Later, she finds fireworks in Luce's locker and begins to feel threatened after she calls Naomi Watts in to tell her her concerns, and Watts keeps it private. Not wanting to rock the boat or really even consider any of the issues that Spencer had addressed, although Watts keeps it to herself, She starts to look at her son with slightly different eyes because seeds of doubt have been planted. And as she starts to try to get to the bottom of a few inconsistencies and stories he's told her, the film really revels in the ambiguity as we wonder which side is correct, if one is overreacting, or if perhaps this shining example of a perfect high school senior is just a facade and does he really have a twisted agenda. The film has the courage to avoid giving us concrete answers. It makes us wonder about everyone involved and brings up interesting issues of race, outlook, guilt, nature versus nurture, There's a lot going on in the film. It would be a really good one to discuss. And I think everyone who sees it is going to have a slightly different take on things. And I really applaud its sophistication and not needing to wrap everything up with a neat little bow. Luce would play extraordinarily well as part of a triple feature of Michael Hanukkah films. You could put it right in between two of his best ones, starting with my favorite, Caché, which inspired a really interesting discussion between me and the film professor friend that I saw it with, because we both had two totally different ideas about what we had just seen. And then, of course, I would also play The White Ribbon, 
as well and put loose right in the center of those two pictures. Some of my favorite assignments in film school involve taking a philosophical analytic approach to cinema. I did it with everything from crimes and misdemeanors to Antonia's line. It's something I still like to do as a total nerd on my website. And I think the two Hanukkah movies, along with Loose, would lend themselves perfectly to such analysis. Even if, of course, you're not in film school or looking for a paper idea and are just like 99% of you watching it for fun, it's the type of movie that you definitely would want to watch with somebody you enjoy getting into deeper discussions with because it lends itself perfectly to that. It didn't matter if it had wheels, wings, or hooves. As long as it was fast, Howard Hawks was a fan. And you even see that in the dialogue in his films that just goes like the wind. Arriving in Hollywood with his brother Kenneth, the two men served in the Air Force during World War I. Howard didn't see any action, though. He had been training to be a squadron commander at University of California, Berkeley, but he was so naturally gifted that they tapped him to teach aviators how to fly, which is good background, actually, for a film director. Not only did he know the right way to instruct and inspire people, it also helped pave the way for the great plane pictures that Hawks made and set the stage for what would be a recurring theme throughout his entire filmography, which is love stories between men and the male camaraderie that exists, especially among professional men, mentors and protégés, father and son figures. He was a guy's guy, and you can see that right from the beginning. Stories of the life and death stakes of daredevil pilots and those flying on behalf of the United States were very popular in the 1920s and 1930s. After all, Wings was the first film to win Best Picture in 1927. The first aviation movie that Howard Hawks made was The Air Circus in 1928, kind of cashing in on the craze that Wings had started and the news about Charles Lindbergh was still in the air. The film used those same signatures of the male friendships, which had started earlier in his silent films, and he continued to be interested in flying films, which we see in his first sound film he helmed, which was The Flight-Minded Dawn Patrol, which came out in 1930. Sadly, it was the same year that his brother Kenneth died along with nine others while directing aerial scenes. He perished in a horrific plane crash working on the film Such Men Are, also in 1930. Nine years later, Howard Hawks combined all of his feelings and experience on the subject into the story for what would become one of his first masterpieces, 1939's Only Angels Have Wings, which you can find now on the Criterion channel. The film stars his bringing up baby lead actor Cary Grant as the head pilot and manager of a small airline company that carries airmail from a fictional South American port up through a high dangerous pass in the Andes Mountains. 
Jean Arthur, whom Howard Hawks had seen in one of Frank Capra's pictures, plays a newly arrived entertainer who's just in to the port from the banana boat, and she meets one of Cary Grant's crew, a charming pilot who perishes in a tragic accident. Shortly thereafter, Arthur becomes infatuated by the fatalistic, or is it pessimistic, or is it realistic attitude of Cary Grant, and finds herself staying longer than she intended, and hoping to see if she can thaw a little of the ice around Cary Grant's heart. That ice starts to crack with the arrival of the new pilot who's in to replace the recently deceased one. The man is now married to Cary Grant's old flame, played by Rita Hayworth, and he also has more static with Grant and his crew because he's no longer allowed to fly in the United States after he bailed on a crashing plane and left his mechanic to die. The mechanic is the brother of Cary Grant's best friend. The film has quite a bit of drama wrapped up in it, but it also has that trademark three-cushion dialogue that Hawks loves, where they say one thing, it bounces around and means something else by the time it gets to the next person. It's also an early introduction to the Hawksian woman. Gene Arthur and Howard Hawks actually didn't get along very well on the making of the film, mostly because, as she says... She didn't know exactly what it was that Hawks expected of her or how to play the part. And it wasn't until she saw Lauren Bacall in To Have and Have Not that she finally understood the type of prototypical Hawksian woman that he had in mind. When it comes to the film, however, Hawks always thought Gene Arthur did a very good job. But sadly, their collaboration wasn't the best. And although Howard Hawks really embraced every genre, I mean, the man made gangster movies like Scarface, he made screwball comedies like Bringing Up Baby, he made film noir like The Big Sleep, westerns like Rio Bravo, although he made all kinds of movies, this has always been one of my favorite films he made, and... One that I always felt worked well as an almost thematic prequel to another one of my favorite Hawks pictures, Red River. Both films are available on the Criterion channel, and they're highly recommended. Perhaps it's my love of film and neo-noir coming through, but I'm always most interested in an actor's work when they're playing an anti-hero or somebody with flaws. And this goes double when it comes to actors we ordinarily see as knights in shining armor, like the Tom Cruises, Tom Hanks, or Denzel Washington's of the world. And nobody captures Denzel Washington's flaws quite like Carl Franklin. The fifth film that I wanted to talk about today is Out of Time which was released in 2003 and reunited Denzel Washington with his Devil in a Blue Dress director, Carl Franklin. Franklin, of course, is no stranger to noir. He made the brilliant film One False Move with Bill Paxton and Billy Bob Thornton, which, if you haven't seen it, like, track it down tomorrow. It's amazing. 
but Out of Time is a great thriller that didn't get the love it deserved. I think partly because people just don't want to see Denzel play somebody who's a little shady. The film can be found on Hoopla, H-O-O-P-L-A, which is a library-supported site if your library has the account for Hoopla. If not, you can also find it on Vudu, which is V-U-D-U. That's a free ad-supported site. But the movie would be uncut, and as Carl Franklin intended it, and as the film was released in 2003. In the film, Denzel Washington stars as Matt Whitlock, who is the chief of police of a fictional Florida Keys town. The movie itself reminds me a lot of Body Heat, or at least that's what it's going for. There's only one Body Heat, but this is quite a lot of fun. And... Matt Whitlock is just as horned up, basically, as William Hurt was in Body Heat. When we first meet him, he is sleeping with his now-married high school ex-girlfriend, played by Sanaa Lathan, who's married to an abusive former pro football player, played by Dean Kane. As the movie begins, she finds herself diagnosed with a very rare form of cancer, and she and Matt find out about some cutting-edge treatment overseas that costs like a half a million dollars, which is around the same amount he can get his hands on because it's in evidence at the police station. He decides he's going to do it, help her get the treatment she needs, and also help her get the hell away from Dean Kane. The next thing he knows, she winds up dead alongside her husband in a suspicious fire, and the money has burned up. He looks like he would be the torch man, and his own ex-wife, played by Eva Mendez, is the detective from the big city who arrives to investigate the incident. So he's constantly trying to stay ahead of the case, find out what they know, and then do his own investigation to try to clear his name because a witness has seen him and he's trying to stay ahead of the curve. The movie is very exciting, very quickly paced. It's an edge-of-your-seat thriller that the audience was getting really caught up in when I saw it back at the press screening in 03. It just must not have been released at the right time because it didn't catch fire the way it should have, which is too bad because I love watching Denzel play against type, and this would be a blast to watch back-to-back with Devil in a Blue Dress. You can do a, a pairing of two by Carl Franklin with Denzel. It's just too bad they didn't bring Don Cheadle in this one, or we could have had a total reunion. No, I'm just kidding. But the film is very good. It also features a terrific John Billingsley as his one ally at the department who kind of knows what's going on and is trying to help him sort of stay ahead of Eva Mendez. Billingsley is the comic relief of Out of Time, and while it's not on par with One False Move or Double in a Blue Dress, which are two of the best neo-noirs of the 1990s, it is a lot of fun, it's beautifully made, and I think you're going to really enjoy it. 
especially right now, we could all use a mindless, fast-paced film, and that's exactly what you get with Out of Time. And that wraps up this week's five new recommendations. I want to thank you so much for listening. You can track me down on social media at Film Intuition, reply to this Patreon post with any questions, comments, or concerns. And I hope you have a very safe and healthy week. And I will see you next time on Watch with Jen.